welcome back to another week of the Public Lands Podcast. It's a packed and interesting show today with three guests. You might remember that I was trying to get back over to San Juan Island to interview Jeff Hodge, Master Interpreter with the National Parks, after hearing his excellent interpretive presentation on the Salmon Banks. Although I was never able to do that, I have Lauren Kim and Celida Moran to thank for doing so. We will hear Jeff's Salmon Banks talk as it was delivered live to an audience at American Camp on San Juan Island. Then we'll hear from Lauren and Celida directly as they tell us about exciting sound research that they conducted in Moran State Park on Orcas Island. One more podcast from the Salish Sea of Washington and British Columbia before shifting back to Minnesota for a bit. And then mid-fall, the promised expansion to public lands and waters further from our bases of operation. And now, National Parks Interpretive Specialist Jeff Hodge tells us the fascinating story of the salmon banks along the west coast of San Juan Island. Well, welcome. Welcome to the salmon banks. Uh, You probably saw it on your map as South Beach. Um, Traditionally, it's been called salmon banks, but you can call it uh, whatever you like. My name is Ranger Jeff. I'm an interpretive ranger with San Juan Island National Historical Park, and I'm glad you guys came by. Uh, We give this talk once a week uh, down here, a couple of times a day usually. And we talk about the salmon banks because of their importance for lots of reasons. The story is really millions of years in the making. Uh, It's about um, uh, economic boom times and ecological collapse because of those boom times. The reason the salmon banks are so interesting... um, Uh, is because of a unique geological feature that is here on the southern end of San Juan Island in the uh, San Juan Island chain. Um, On the west side of the island, the water is very deep. At Limekiln Point, it's over 600 feet deep. So as the salmon traverse from their native spawning grounds in the Fraser River Valley, Skagit River, uh, and other points north, they're transiting south. They're either going to the lower Puget Sound to get fat in the eelgrass and uh, and to uh, feed, or they're going... Uh, west out into the Pacific Ocean where they'll stay for several several years. But that transit, either one they make, takes them right down the west side of the island through the deep water down to this very, very shallow spot. So what I've done is I've taken a LIDAR image of the southern end of the island and I've expanded it, but I've also dropped the water level in the Puget Sound by uh, uh, about 100 feet. And what you see here is a very shallow outcrop on the southern end of the island. If I look out here, I can see see a buoy just out in the middle of the channel there in the distance. I don't know if you can see it. Right out here. Out here, ladies. Right out there. And that marks this tip of this really shallow spot. So what happens as the salmon traverse on the western side the orcas try and feed all the way down, but because of the depth of the water, it's, it's difficult. But when they get down to the shallow end, they're pushed up towards the surface, but it gets even better. The orcas will, two of them or three of them, will get offshore, and they'll herd the salmon back towards shore to the shallow space, and then the rest of the orca pod will feed off of those salmon. Uh, an orca, a full-grown orca, will eat about 350 pounds of salmon per day, and 80% of that is is uh, Chinook salmon, and they like the Chinook salmon because they're the largest the, of the salmon, and they also have a very high fat content. So it's less effort for them to get their dietary needs. So Chinook are very, very important, and historically, this spot, salmon banks, is very, very important. So. 
Native Americans saw this. Native Americans arrived in the area about 14,000 years ago across the Bering Land Bridge. And um, well, of course, they're looking for food sources. They're looking for places to live. They arrived here at the southern tip of San Juan Island, and they were catching salmon, <clears throat> uh, more salmon than they could possibly deal with. But they were de doing it one salmon at a time until some enterprising, smart Native American was watching the orcas and saw how they fished, and they replicated that in what's called uh, fish trapping or reef netting. So what they do is they create nets they take those out into the Puget Sound, they anchor them on the bottom with rock weights, and they wait for the salmon to begin making the run. The salmon have a very peculiar habit about them. They, uh, once they start moving in one direction, they won't turn around. They're kind of like a flock of geese. They follow one another. And the orcas take advantage of that. The Native Americans took advantage of that as well. So those fish swim right up the bottom of that reef net, trapped by the two sides of the net into a catch net at the end of it between two, um, two canoes. When that net is full, the Native Americans would drag that to shore. The women and the children would grab the fish, cut the heads off, gut them, and then hang them to dry. You, in, um, in prehistoric times, you would have had um, hundreds or thousands of fish on drying racks um, uh, along salmon banks here. Um, when the native, when Hudson Bay Company arrived in 1853, they were originally buying salmon from the Native Americans, and this was a relationship that worked really well. Uh, we weren't taking enough fish out of the waters to do danger. Um, Hudson Bay Company was making a nice profit by marking up the salmon they were buying for the Native Americans. And the Native Americans were prospering because they had no uh, money-based economy, but they could use it to buy goods from Hudson Bay and from other traders. So it went really well for a couple of years. But then Hudson Bay Company scratched their heads and they say, well, why aren't we catching those fish and, uh, and getting all that money for ourselves? So they did that. They put the Native Americans out of business by essentially not buying salmon from them and they started fishing for themselves. Uh, originally they were doing it with uh, human-powered rowboats, but applying lots of men uh, to the problem and catching lots of, uh, lots of fish as well, but still not doing any damage. They weren't taking enough fish to do damage. However, when the Americans <clears throat> took over the islands after the Pig War in 1872, uh, we also saw the commercial promise of salmon uh, in the Pacific Northwest. And we do what Americans do best. We innovate. We applied steam technology to harvesting these salmon. We also applied... Uh, taking the reef nets, which were small in scale with the Native Americans, and creating uh, the same technology but on a huge scale. So there were 12 major fish traps uh, run by several um, fish canneries and uh, fisheries in the Pacific Northwest that would have lined this stretch of Four Mile Beach. They ran three-quarters of a mile out into the Puget Sound and were anchored with huge telephone poles and huge reef nets to direct the fish as they came down the west side of the island to direct them into catch nets here closer to shore. Um, they were also using steam-powered boats to lift those nets 
many, many fish to lift those nets and put them into skippers, which then took them to the canneries, which automated, automatically cut the heads off and gutted the fish and then uh, sent them on for processing and canning. Um, here you can see the results of that. Uh, so this is the fish floor uh, on a, at a cannery in Friday Harbor, and the fish are, are literally three feet deep, covering thousands of square feet. So we got really, really good at fishing as, uh, as Americans. So good that um, we, we said, like the uh, Hudson Bay Company, we don't want that competition. So in 1880, uh, the the legislature in Washington enacted the Native American Fishery Act. And what that essentially did was put the Native Americans out of business. It says, Native Americans, you can catch all the salmon you want. You just can't sell them to anybody. So we took that business uh, away from the Native Americans um, and the people that actually taught Hudson Bay how to fish, and uh, we took that away from them. And we continued fishing like that for, for many years. Uh, we were harvesting fish by the millions uh, on this four-mile stretch of beach and taking them all over the Pacific Northwest to be canned. They were going internationally. It was a new protein source for America, and Americans really loved this fish. I, I love salmon. Uh, I don't eat salmon anymore. But back in those days, salmon was cheap. Uh, you could get it for about 12 cents per pound. I priced a, a salmon at Pike's Place Market a couple of weeks ago, and it's $30 per pound. So it's gone up just a little bit. It's a very, very valuable commodity. And, and you'll find out why in just a bit. So we got so good at fishing for salmon in one 48-hour period between July 29th and July 31st in 1917, and remember, there were 12 of these traps here. One of those traps, one single trap, caught 28,000 salmon in a single day. And we did this for roughly 60 years. Every single year, we were taking millions of fish out of the Puget Sound. Um, <clears throat> the early fishing industry in Washington State um, was dominated by the fisheries right here along this row. Pacific Canning Company, this is called Pacific Packers Rock, the, the big rock down there at the end of South Beach because that's where their primary station was and they ran traps all the way down uh, the, the shoreline here. Uh, the first survey that was done within 25 years of uh, the settling of the islands the gentleman who did that survey said, salmon abound in great quantities at a certain season of the year, when the water in every direction seems to be filled with salmon. The Hudson Bay Company has a fishing establishment on San Juan, where I informed they have put up this season 600 barrels of salmon. That was in the very early years. But, as we all know, uh, when we begin to take uh, harvest out of uh, an ecosystem, it has an effect on that ecosystem, whether or not it's short-term or long-term. Uh, it will have some impact. We took so many fish out of the Puget Sound so quickly that here we are uh, more than 150 years later and the ecosystem has still not recovered. It has not recovered and it's having a down 
downward spiral effect on our resident orcas. Uh, if you haven't heard, we have a, a pod of about 75. They're called resident orca whales. They only eat salmon. Uh, it's 80% of their diet is coho, excuse me, Chinook salmon. So they are very dependent on these salmon banks and the, the, uh, the Chinook salmon. And because we took so many out and because they're not recovering, uh, they're starving to death, literally starving to death. Um, so we have formed what's called the Southern Resident Orca Task Force. This is a statewide effort to try and find ways to get more fish in the mouths of the orcas while protecting the orcas at the same time. You should read this report. It's absolutely fascinating and there's some really good work going on. We'll see what the, down, um, the downward effect is. Uh, we do have promising news that two uh, orcas were born this year and uh, uh, as far as we know have survived. But the problem is not new births necessarily. We like new births, but the problem is that the population is getting older. And as they get older, they stop producing uh, as many young, which means that eventually they will die off in numbers. Uh, and if that happens, uh, the effect on the economy here in the San Juans is going to be dramatic. When, um, in 1934, when the Washington state government saw what we were doing to the ecosystem, they outlawed these fish traps. And they outlawed fish wheels. Um, even in 1934, even that primitive uh, understanding of ecology and environmental science, they saw that we were doing irreparable damage to the uh, fish population here. So they, they outlawed it. But even at that, the salmon have not recovered. So there's an irony here. I, as I wind this up, there's an irony that I hope is not lost on you. The orcas taught the Native Americans how to fish for salmon. The Native Americans taught Hudson Bay Company how to fish for salmon. Hudson Bay taught the Americans how to fish for salmon, and they put it on steroids. And here we are 150 years later, and we're starving to death the very ones who taught all of us how to fish. And I think that's a strange and terrible irony to have to live with. So I guess my message is the history here is rich, it's unique, it's an incredibly beautiful place. Uh, it's a protected place for lots of reasons, and it's a place I hope you come to and you, you understand and care about the orcas as much as we do. And um, find out what you can do. Read this report and find out what you can do to help protect our southern resident orcas. Thanks very much. Again, Jeff's talk was recorded and brought to us by Lauren Kim and Celida Moran. Thanks, Celida and Lauren, for that special report. And a special thanks to Jeff Hodge for the work that he does for all of us in the National Park System. Next, you will hear about research that Lauren and Celida did this summer in Moran State Park on Orcas Island. These two dynamic young scholars were working with me this summer on a project concerning comparative noise levels in four campgrounds in Moran. And they came up with their own fascinating sound map study that involved long hikes, sound measurement, and interviews. Lauren will share information about their method, and then I will interview Celida about the results and applications of the research. So now, Lauren, who is currently in Shanghai, sends us this overview of the method that she and Celida used in Moran State Park. Hi, public lands listeners. My name is Lauren Kim, and I am an incoming junior at Yale University, majoring in environmental studies and urban studies. This summer, through the Doris Duke Conservation Scholars at University of Washington, my friend Salida and I worked with Mark to make a sound map of Moran State Park. 
Now, previous sound maps have focused on point-based recordings of sound over time. However, the sounds we hear also change as we navigate through space. So with the creation of smartphone sound measurement apps, we can now explore sound in a way that addresses both factors of time and distance, in a way that's more representative of how humans may perceive sound. More importantly, our goal is to use these apps to develop and share an accessible and applicable sound mapping methodology so that anyone can make one of their own community. We hope our research and outreach will encourage the conservation and management of sound as a public resource. So I'll take you through the steps of our project. Over the period of two months, we hiked every trail in Moran State Park. Because we were collecting sound data, we needed to be as silent as possible on our hikes. It was quite beautiful and meditative, honestly. It was like a reflective sound walk through the forests of Moran, but for science. We used two smartphone apps, SPL Graph and Live Tracker. First, we used SPL Graph to collect sound levels while we hiked. We waited the app for the decibel range in which humans hear. At the same time, we used an app called Live Tracker to collect GPS points. We lined up both the sound levels and the GPS points using time as a common factor to create a visual that demonstrated the different sound levels we heard on our hikes. There was one last step for our sound map. SPL Graph collected sound levels but did not tell us any information about sources of sound. Even though they might be similar in volume, the splash of a waterfall is not necessarily the same as the drone of an airplane flying overhead. Therefore, we decided to conduct surveys with park guests at certain points throughout the park. We chose survey sites that were diverse recreationally and geographically. From swimming to hiking and a viewpoint to a waterfall, our survey sites offered a wide range of soundscapes and visitors. At each point, we asked survey participants to listen to the sounds around them for 10 seconds. Afterwards, we asked them questions about the sources of what they heard and how these sounds impacted their experience in the park. We wanted to synthesize our sound measurements with survey data to have a comprehensive understanding of what role sound plays in their park visit. Thanks for that, Lauren, and safe travels back to New Haven. Next, we hear from Celida Moran. We're speaking to Celida Moran, a senior in uh, environmental science at Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington. Celida is minoring in geographic information science. And I had the good fortune to work with, with Celida as, long as, as well as Lauren Kim this summer. They were in their second year of the Doris Duke Conservation Scholars Program, a summer field program at the University of Washington. Now, Celida, um, Lauren told us about the methodology that you used to create the sound map of Moran State Park. Could you tell us a bit mm -hmm. about, about what you discovered in Moran State Park? Um, overall, I think that the general trend that we found was that Moran is a relatively quiet park, um, which really was fantastic for our research because it provided a great baseline for our methodology since it was generally quiet in many areas. Um, it allowed us to really get a good soundscape of the park, meaning we were able to collect um, sound levels around all the trails uh, relatively easily and including in the um, campgrounds as well. We also found that the quality of the visitor experience, so kind of how visitors are impacted by the sounds they hear, is affected by both volume and the source of sound, not just the volume. So um, generally what that means is us taking actual uh, levels and measurements of the sounds around us, just the volume basically and the frequency, wouldn't have told us uh, the quality of the visitor experience 
um, alone. We would have needed to take surveys and really talk to people to figure out what the sources of sounds were and how those also impacted visitor experience along with the volume. And then overall, one last main finding we found was that all participants said the sound and its impacts should be taken into consideration for public lands management. So what this told us was um, that our methodology can be used and maybe should be used for determining how sounds impact uh, the experience of people in an environment and maybe that our methodology can and should be used for public lands management if people really think that sound should be taken into consideration when um, public lands are going to be stewarded and managed. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Can you give an example of where, for example, a uh, sound might have been particularly loud, but it's not bothersome to people, or the reverse? I mean, where uh, can you think of an example where the measurement alone, as you mentioned, doesn't give us enough information that you need to talk to people to find out how they interpret or perceive these sounds? Right, right. So um, kind of at Cascade Falls, we, we took surveys and measurements around there and that was generally um, it's like a short path from a parking lot where people stop and it's a short path from there to the actual Cascade Falls um, viewpoint or kind of destination area um, it's relatively very um, forested um, lots of waterfalls on the way um, lots of kind of rocks and sticks strewn around the trail so um, I guess you could say it was relatively more natural, quote-unquote, than other uh, viewpoints and survey sites that we went to. And actually, 85% of what people heard there was natural sounds. Um, and despite this, despite this, people also heard some the drone of some airplanes overhead, the screaming of children around the area, because, of course, a lot of families go there, dogs barking, things like that. Um, and so despite the 85% of natural sound people in that area were still um, okay and still kind of deemed anthropogenic or man-made sounds um, appropriate to that area. So even though people thought of it as more of a natural place, they still saw and heard the, um, the man-made sounds as uh, generally appropriate and not inappropriate to that area. So we found that Overall, that was kind of a trend for all four of the survey sites that we went to, Cascade Lake Day Use Area, the Mountain Lake, um, around Mountain Lake, the hiking area around there, and Mount Constitution, which is one of, uh, arguably one of the, uh, sorry, arguably one of the um, more popular viewpoints on the island. Um, all of those areas seem to have, seem to be um, an appropriate place for man-made sounds, which is what people thought. Or what people felt and that was kind of surprising to us because we thought a lot of them said that they came to a state park to enjoy the quietness of sound and enjoy um kind of the experience of peace and quiet but they still deemed man-made sounds as appropriate makes sense it sounds like in the case of cascade falls that the falls themselves might be providing a kind of uh, loud natural sound that almost um, makes everything else seem quiet in comparison, so it seems appropriate. Um, Moran State Park as a whole is a pretty quiet place, I think you, you found. Um, would you see any value in doing this kind of research at other parks that maybe aren't as quiet or getting comparison? What do you see as some of the other practical benefits of this method and these kinds of maps and measures that are provided by it? What do you see as some of the practical applications? Um, 
that's a great question. I think uh, as Lauren and I were kind of hashing out ideas for this research project and how it could be used to kind of evaluate the privilege, power, identity, and agency inherent within environmental science and with the environmental field and conservation in general, um, we ended up hashing out that the methodology itself could be applied to analyze these things within the conservation field, um, being in the sense that the methodology, we aimed for it to be relatively accessible to a large number of people who aren't just scientists or have, you know, a PhD degree or something like that. I mean, we're just undergrads and we were able to do this. So our thought was you could use your smartphone or something similar that can have two mobile apps on it to track the sound levels in your environment or and that environment can be in an urban setting, in a rural setting, in a state park. Um, in your neighborhood, back home, um, kind of the accessibility of it in that sense could be um, used for people who don't necessarily know a lot about sound science, but can't, but do know how to navigate a smartphone app. Yeah. Um, so an example would be if, um, I guess if you are living in a low-income area in a city, and the freeway near your house that was built there um, that you generally didn't want there, but you know, policymakers decided to put it there anyway. If you wanted to prove to policymakers and other people around you about the sound levels that are emitted from that freeway, you can walk around that area with a smartphone in your app, taking GPS points and also taking sound levels, SPL, sound pressure levels to be more exact, um, around that area and actually make kind of a soundscape of your environment to show people that this is actually a scientific thing. This is what I'm hearing, and this is what's affecting my health. These specific levels that I took myself, and this is real and this is legitimate, basically. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I'm heavily biased, but yeah, I know you did a wonderful job on this this summer, and it resulted in an actual sound map to give a pe uh, people an idea of how you would visualize this data, how you'd present it, et cetera to do all the things that you just mentioned. So where might listeners find your sound map of Moran State Park that you produced? Listeners of this podcast can definitely find our work and our research and our findings on a web map that we made of our soundscape of Moran State Park. And so basically on this web map, we have our methodology, an introduction as to why um, our work is important. We have, um, and then we have our results, the perceptions of sound that we found from visitors and some conclusions that we reached. Um, so this web map can be found on our bit.ly that we made, our bit.ly URL, and I can read that out loud right now. Um, bit.ly slash orca sound. So let's give them that one more time as bit. Dot ly slash orca sound. Great. Sounds great. Well, thanks so much for talking about your research. It's really exciting stuff. And I just want to um, uh, bother you for one more question, and that is, yeah. what was it like being in the Doris Duke uh, Conservation Scholars Program over these last two years? Um, I think it's it, everything I've learned about it from Brett Ramey, et cetera, and people have heard him interviewed on here. It sounds like an incredible program. From the perspective of being a student, what was it like? Oh, wow, that's, <laughs> the answer, I have so many answers to that question, all fantastic answers. I, it's honestly been a completely life-changing experience. Prior to being in the Doors Duke Conservation Scholars Program, I, um, 
I really had no idea what I wanted to do with my environmental science degree. All I knew is that I wanted to be in nature and I wanted to work with animals. Um, but following my experience in the program, I realized that people are integral to environmental science and conservation and communities and families and children and elders. All these people are part of the ecosystems that they interact with. And they also have a right to enjoy the public lands around them and to have equitable access to resources and things like that. And all of that is included in conservation, whether it's urban, whether it's farming, whether it's, you know, a state park, whether it's in your own backyard. Um, and I learned that people really do, people really do care, you know, and people of all ages care and they all deserve a right to this. So I found through the program that I want to be working with communities in the future, um, kind of more on the ground and, you know, asking them how I can be of service to them and to questions they have about the environment around them or helping them access resources that they might otherwise not have the agency or the, um, the understanding to access. Um, and then, so on that front, it really helped me figure out what I want to do. And it, it's giving me a lot of connections to other people in the academic field, in the public sector, in the private sector to connect with in the future to make this actually happen. And then on the um, social and personal front, I met some of my best friends there. Um, I, I, am, I cannot be more grateful for the people that I met there, all people who um, are basically similar to me and, and who are interested in helping people and the environment at the same time and who really want to make a difference in the world and combat climate change and, and do incredible things. I... I guess I get kind of wordy when I talk about this because they've all made such an impact on me and they've shown me really what true true care for community and care for individuals is. Um, it was also my first introduction to actually seeing people of color be active in the environment and I feel like I didn't get that at my university or in any of my education prior. I was kind of taught about the white environmentalism movement but I was never taught about intersectionality in the environment. and everyone in my program in my cohort taught me about how to have these um, important and sometimes difficult discussions about intersectionality and the environment and access to resources and who you are and power and privilege and identity and agency. Um, I am, I, I want to cry because I'm going to miss these people so much. Um, but I know that I still have contact with them and they're all going to do amazing things. So Yes, sorry for the long-winded answer. No, that was wonderful to hear about. I think that, that listeners will be really excited to hear about such a program as exists and, and, and to think at least vicariously what it would be like to be part of one. So I know I was incredibly fortunate that you and Lauren were part of this program, and, and I benefited from your um, um, being on Orcas Island and doing this work. So. Thanks for sharing that and all your knowledge with us today, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your summer before classes start up in the fall. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate it, and I appreciate all the help and mentorship that you gave Lauren and, and me and myself, because without you, we wouldn't have known um, what a wonderful methodology we, we would have made, and it was just a fantastic experience, and you were definitely a crucial part of that, you and Karen. <laughs> all right. All right. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Next week, a special report from the field. Probably Eloise Butler, Wildflower Garden and Bird Sanctuary in Theodore Worth Park. 
For now, I hope that you get out to enjoy, support, and take care of a park, refuge, lake, stream, garden, or other public place near you. Thank you.